turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. Well, Frederick Olford was a, a missionary in different parts of Africa just a few generations ago. He was used mightily by God to bring several tribes to, to faith in Christ throughout his work and, and witness. And his son Stephen tells a story of Frederick one night being led from one tribe's village to another in order to, to preach the gospel there. And, and the way was was right smack dab through the, the dangers of the jungle, filled with lions and tigers, hyenas and snakes and all sorts of dangers potentially facing any traveler. And thankfully, there was a, a guide there to, to, uh, to give uh, Frederick the, the, the knowledge of the way. There's a local man who had volunteered to show him the way, and, and so they set out, and and as they set out, the, the sun was still up, but as they made their way into the jungle, the jungle's kind of natural canopy kind of darkened the path in some ways. And then as they were traveling, the, the day slowly turned into evening, and the evening slowly turned into the black of night, the sun sank, and eventually the darkness of the jungle began to envelop them completely. And they were left traveling through the jungle in the pitch black of night as the sounds of the jungle started rising around them. Lions were growling. They could hear hyenas barking, snakes slithering. As you can imagine, Frederick started getting a little bit nervous. So he asked the guide, hey, are we, are we going the right way here? And the guide assured him, yes, yes, we're, we're going the right way. They kept going a little while longer still, still no village. So Frederick inquired again, hey, are we still going the right way here? The guide said, yes, yes. He assured him, yeah, we're, we're going the right way. And they kept going a, a while longer still, and still they hadn't arrived. And so Frederick asked again, are you sure we're going the right way? And out of indignation, the guide stopped, turned around. He looked at Frederick and said to him, white man, do you see the scars on my body? I got these scars making this path. White man, do you see the scars and calluses on these feet? I got these making this journey. White man, I am the way. This morning, we're, we're thinking together about the doctrine of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. We're thinking about this, this biblical claim that Jesus is the only way to God, to salvation, to eternal life, and that there is no other. Now, undoubtedly, this is, this is not a popular Christian belief. Some of you are starting to squirm in your seats already. Uh, Cameron Braun and I were at a conference together just a few weeks ago where one of the speakers, Dr. Jason Allen, said this. He said, if people don't like what we think about marriage and sexuality as Christians, they're really not going to like what the Bible has to say about the eternal state apart from Jesus Christ. The exclusivity of Jesus is the most offensive statement in the Christian faith. The only reason people aren't more offended by this than they are about our stance on the LGBTQ issues or whatever else is because they're not hearing it enough. With this being so offensive and with pastors therefore not talking about it because of its potential offense as much, 
It shouldn't be much of a surprise to us that many professing to be evangelical Christians today are increasingly compromised on this belief in biblical teaching. It seems that there's some measure of confusion and cognitive dissonance on this matter. We've been looking at the State of Theology report that's kind of given rise to this particular series that we're in right now. The State of Theology report released late last year by Ligonier and Lifeway Research and uh, it shows that the, the vast majority of those professing to be gospel Christians in America today agreed with statements like this. It's, it's very important for me to personally encourage non-Christians to trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Likewise, 99% of professing gospel Christians agreed with the statement that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. People agreed, the vast majority of people agreed with statements like this, while also the vast majority of gospel Christians agreed with statements like this, when asked to respond to this statement, God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, Islam. 6% said they weren't sure, 10% said they somewhat agreed, 46% strongly agreed. And so looking at this, you're just kind of left wondering, so do we really believe that Jesus is the only path to reconciliation to God or not? Do we really believe that his cross is the only penalty-appeasing sacrifice, that he is the only way to reconciliation to God, or do we believe that there's multiple paths among different religions and philosophies and systems of belief in this world? And more importantly, most importantly, here's what we want to ask and seek to answer this morning is, what does the Bible say about this? What do the scriptures say about Jesus and his salvation and whether or not he's the only way to God? Our text, as I said before, is 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence, let's listen with relish. To the word of our God as it's written by Paul and inspired by the Holy Spirit. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, would you empower and anoint the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit for the sake and glory of your name. Exalt Jesus here in our midst this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. I'll give a little context here. Uh, this is what we call, First uh, Timothy is what we call a pastoral epistle. It's written from the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy. And First Timothy 
1.3 shows us Timothy has been left in the city of Ephesus by Paul in order to guide that congregation there into faithful teaching and to guard the congregation there from false teaching. And then Paul writes his letter, therefore, here to Timothy to help him along in these aims. With that in, in, in chapter 2 here, Paul has now turned to instruct Timothy in something of how the church ought to order its worship and life together there in Ephesus. And as we often see with the Apostle Paul, he, he really just can't seem to help himself. He seems to tie almost everything back to this most central article of our faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is instructing that the church's worship ought to include missional and evangelistic prayer for all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues. And then he says also that this praying should include requests for governing authorities. And this prayer for governing authorities seems to be particularly aimed at their ruling with justice and integrity, as well as permitting some measure of religious freedom for Christians. Because, Paul says, the purpose of praying for them in this way is so that their society could have some measure of peace and quiet and good order. And then it's in the midst of this peace and quiet and good order that Christians are then to live lives of faithful witness for the gospel, lives of godliness and dignity that bear witness to the truth of our gospel. Paul says that, that, that Christians ought to live lives like this because God desires that all people be saved. We're to give witness to the truth of this gospel, a dignified, godly life, so that the gospel would be given credible witness to the truth of our gospel, Paul says, because there's only one God, and there's only one way to this God, and that is Christ Jesus. And thus, if we want our neighbors to know this one God and the one way to Him, we're to pray for them and to live godly lives that give credible witness to our message. Now, that's the argument Paul is making here. But we're, we're going to kind of follow it sort of backwards this morning. We're going to start where Paul ends and then work our way back. Paul starts with a practice and application, then he works, he works his way to the theological reason for that practice and application. But we're going to start with the theology and then work our way back to the practice. Remember, the question we're asking this morning is, is Jesus the only way? And to this, our text answers this morning with a resounding yes. So please look with me here at 1 Timothy 2, particularly verse 5 here, and how Jesus is the sole Savior, the sufficient Savior, and the sending Savior. First, Jesus is the sole Savior, S-O-L-E, the sole, the only Savior. Paul writes in verse 5 that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Paul says there's, there's only one God. And this one God, he says, it's, it's not as if there are many gods, and that we're all free to, to worship whichever one of these gods we prefer, that all religions and all conceptions of God being equal, do whatever you want. No, there is one God who created us, and therefore there is one God who alone deserves our worship and love and adoration, and therefore it is against this one God that we all have sinned and rebelled, and thus it is by this one God that we need to be forgiven and to this one God that we need to be reconciled. And then Paul goes further saying that there's only one way for that to happen. There's only one way for us to be reconciled to this one God. There's only one mediator between humanity and this one God. There's only one person 
that brings this reconciliation and who brings the forgiveness of sins. There's only one exclusive way to this God, and his name is Jesus. Anyone who knows the one true God, worships the one true God, is accepted by the one true God, is reconciled to the one true God, they only know him, worship him, are accepted by him, are reconciled to him through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. There is no other way. There's no amount of good works or religious activity or devotion. There's no brand of morality. There's there's nothing else that can get you to him no matter how sincere you are or how sacrificial or devoted you are to whatever your religious preferences are. Jesus is the sole mediator. He is the only one who mediates between God and humanity if you would be saved. If you would be reconciled to God and forgiven for your sin, if you would be granted eternal life, you must place your faith and trust alone in Christ alone. There is no other way. You might say, well, that's what Paul says. That's just Paul. The Apostle Peter says the exact same in his sermon in Acts 4.12. He's preaching to a group of deeply devout and religious men. Peter says this to them about Jesus. He says there's There is salvation in no one else, he says. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And you might say, well, that's just the apostles then. The Jesus I know is much more inclusive. He wouldn't make such a claim for himself. Well, friend, listen to the words of Jesus. We read them earlier, John 14, 6. There Jesus says about himself, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am a way. He says, I am the way. He says, I am the truth. The the truth is not a, a, a set of beliefs. The truth is personified in Jesus of Nazareth. You must know him in truth if you are to know God. He says, I'm the life. If you want to be saved. If you want to be regenerated, born again, reconciled to God, he's the life. It's in him alone. No one comes to the Father except through this one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. This is crystal clear in the scriptures. As you can imagine, there are several challenges to this belief and teaching in the world and even in the church today. And that's partly because of the arrival of globalization, the world becoming a whole lot smaller than it was not just not too long ago, right? Not too long ago, people who led vastly different ways of life and had vastly different beliefs and worldviews and different cultures were also vastly separated by oceans and borders and lands. With globalization, many of those people with vastly different beliefs and cultures and ways of life have become our neighbors. We know much more about each other because of technology and media and social media and all of this, and praise God. Praise God. This is a good gift in many ways. However, sometimes with that has come some some challenges to the Christian claim to have the exclusive truth, the way of salvation in Christ. One of those challenges is is the challenges of religious or spiritual pluralism. This challenge will will often claim that, well, all religions and beliefs are, are equally valid. We need to, you know, accept one another in this. We, we, we need to, to just 
be cool, agree to disagree, and, and move on with our lives. And, and besides, we all have uh, truth and beauty and goodness in our worldviews, right? The differences don't ultimately matter in the grand scheme of things because God is much bigger than any one set of beliefs. This has become common parlance in a globalized world. And, and those who think in this way will often use a, a particular illustration to show what they mean, this illustration uh, of the elephant. You might have heard this before. It's fairly popular, some version of it at least. But often how, how people view God and religion and, and truth claims is like this. They say there's a really big elephant, and there's several blind men that, that stumble upon and begin to touch and to feel this elephant, and, and they're, all trying to, to, they're all starting to try to describe this elephant to one another. One blind man has, has a hold of an ear. And he says, hey guys, an, an elephant, you want to know what an elephant's like? An elephant is flat and circular, kind of like a pancake. Another blind man, he's grabbed a hold of a leg. He says, you are dead wrong, friend. Uh, uh, an elephant is like a pillar. It's, it's like a cylinder that's really sturdy. Another has the tail. He says, nope, you guys are both wrong. An elephant is like a rope. Another has a trunk. He says, you guys are crazy. An elephant is like a long hose. And they're each simply kind of feeling the particular part of the elephant that they have hold of. And they're, they're trying to describe what this elephant is like. And they're all partially right. None of them have the full picture, the full truth. And what's being communicated in this story is that there's truth, beauty, goodness in every religion and every worldview. And all have a, a piece of the larger pie, but none of them are exclusively true. Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Baha'i, everyone else has part of the truth, but no one can claim the true truth, the exclusive truth for themselves. No one can claim that they have the only way to God, because there's lots of ways to understand God. That's often the, the conviction of those that we interact with, even on a daily basis. And so if you're a Christian, this is a problem, because the, the problem arises, it's not that you believe that Christianity is true. It's often perfectly acceptable for you to believe in the world today that the Christian message is true and that you live as a Christian and all that. The problem arises then when we say that the message of Christianity is something that everyone needs to believe in order to be saved, that, it's, that there's only one true God and that Jesus Christ is the only way to him. That's the problem, and except, except that's the exact thing that the Bible says. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. That's exactly what Peter says and preached. It's exactly what Jesus claimed about himself. And therefore, it's exactly what we must say today. Jesus Christ is the only way to God, and that is the message of Christianity. Now, that's often hard for people to accept. It doesn't seem, it doesn't feel very humble, does it? It feels a lot more humble to say that all religions are equally true and good and valid. The person the person telling the story of the elephant, they seem like the humble one initially, don't they? But if you think about it for just a moment, you realize that the only way someone could share that story is if they're claiming to have seen the whole elephant. That they're the ones watching all of these blind religious people, all of these blind men grope around this enormous creature. You see, the one telling the story is claiming to not be amongst the blind men who all have the partial truth. Rather, the one Telling the story is telling the story from the place of a person who has seen the whole truth about the elephant. The one claiming that all worldviews and religions only have a small piece of the pie is actually claiming that they have the whole pie. 
the one who looks very humble and saying that no one has the exclusive truth is claiming to have the exclusive truth. Except, now I, I should say this, I, as the, the story about the elephant is actually not all that bad. In fact, it's, it's actually very close to what we as Christians actually believe. Because as Christians, we do think that we all, every single one of us, are like blind men and women, worshiping our own thoughts of God and ideas of God, that we're all blinded by sin, worshiping idols and false gods and false conceptions of God. We believe that none of us actually knows God in and of ourselves, left to ourselves. None of us actually has a true understanding of who he is and what he's like. We create and imagine gods in our own image and worship them. All of us do that, all of us except one, and that was Christ. Although we're all blind in and of ourselves, in our sin, to who God is and his goodness and his greatness and his glory... We confess that the eternal Son of God stepped in and He has revealed God to us and actually given us the way to Him freely. See, Jesus, we say, is the one who sees the whole elephant. Jesus is the one who reveals the truth about the elephant to us. He truly knows God. He reveals God to us perfectly. That's the Christian claim. Not that we ourselves are more insightful or better or more righteous than our Muslim neighbors or our Hindu neighbors or our unbelieving neighbors or whomever. No, we're not better than anyone. We ourselves are like the blind men. What we're saying is that Jesus is the one who sees and he's given us the path to God in himself. Another challenge to the exclusivity of Jesus. And we'll do these faster. We need to get a move on. Um, another challenge is that religious belief is is socially conditioned, right? You know this challenge? Is that, hey, the reason you believe what you believe is because you've been socially conditioned to do so. You were born into a Christian family. You grew up in a Christian environment. You grew up in a culture that believes these things. It's like people born in Pittsburgh, right? They're, they're Steelers fans. They, they just don't know any better. <laughs> they don't know that it's a completely trash team and most terrible fan base of all time. I'm getting distracted. Um, they just don't know anybody. It's, it's culturally conditioned. It's culturally conditioned. In the same way people say that Christianity is, is culturally conditioned. The reason you believe what you believe as a Christian is because you've been socially conditioned to do so. Just as people in Saudi Arabia are born to be Muslims and people in, in India are Hindus and the like, so people say... Religion is too socially conditioned then for you to have actually any credible claim to possess the exclusive truth. Well, friends, that's a self-defeating argument, right? Because we could rightly answer back, well, so is that. That itself is a socially conditioned conviction. You say that, social, or that religious convictions are socially conditioned, well, that is a socially conditioned conviction. It's one that Westerners, particularly white Westerners, tend to teach and believe quite often, even though almost no one else in the world does. It's a self-defeating argument. Another challenge is that this is unjust. It's unjust that God would make only one way when there's billions of people throughout the world and throughout history that don't have knowledge about Jesus or, or some of whom don't even have access to knowledge about him. Right now, right now, there's, there's 3.37 billion people in unreached people groups across the earth. There's 
278 million people in unengaged unreached people groups, meaning people groups where not only are they unreached, they don't have a self-sustaining church gospel movement among them, but right now, unengaged, unreached people groups, there's no known gospel work in order to make that happen. Well, with that being true, how can this be fair? This is unjust. People often say, what about that innocent person? What about that innocent person who will never hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about that innocent person in the remote tribe in the Amazon who has never heard the gospel and will never hear the gospel? You're telling me that without Christ, that innocent person is going to spend an eternity in hell. We should respond to this in the same way I, I heard David, David Platt respond to this once. The answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. If there's an innocent person who has yet to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ anywhere in the world, and that innocent person dies without knowledge of Christ. Well, that innocent person will most certainly spend an eternity with God. There's no doubt about it. The problem is, is that that innocent person does not exist. And we see this just a few weeks ago. Pastor Brian preached on whether or not we're all sinful by nature. Romans 3, 10, 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one is innocent. Not one. Romans 1, 18 to 20. It says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. It's not an injustice. There are no innocent people. Everyone knows something of the one true God, and everyone has sinned against him, so everyone is without excuse. Friends, we shouldn't seek to, to, to soften this truth in order to make it more palatable to our modern sensibilities. This truth should instead ignite something of a passion in us to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to those unknowing but guilty peoples of the world. And part of Paul's purpose in writing this very passage is so that we would live into that calling of living as a sent people, which we're going to look at in just a few moments. Before we get there, we need to see here that Jesus is also the sufficient Savior. He's the sole Savior, and He's also the sufficient Savior. I understand that this doctrine, even if you see it clearly taught in the scriptures, even if you see it so clearly here, it can be a difficult truth because I know it feel, it doesn't feel humble. It can feel snobbish or cliquish or tribal or whatever, but it's not, and here's why. It's not that Jesus has some abstract thing called salvation or some abstract thing called eternal life that he gives to people who give him what he wants in return. Now, salvation is a person. Jesus is salvation. No one else offers what he offers because no one else is who he is. No one else has done what he has done. 
You know, all other religions led by those blind men and women just like us offer heaven or paradise or nirvana. They offer laws to obey. They offer ceremonies to partake in that lead you to a certain level of deification or salvation or nirvana or spiritual ecstasy or whatever. But you know, in the gospel, Jesus offers something that no one else offers. He offers himself. And he is totally unique in his total sufficiency. There's no one like him. There's no one who has done what he has done. There's no one else who truly and fully knows God. There's no one else who can offer what he offers us. Yes, if the gospel were about Jesus offering us and sharing with us something other than himself, then of course it would come off as clicky or tribal or snobbish or whatever. But he doesn't just give us a path to follow or commands to obey or whatever. He gives us the blessing of himself. He gives us himself. He gives us God. That's why Paul is communicating this here in these, these two words, in particular in our text this morning. Look at these two words, mediator and ransom. Mediator and ransom. Again, Paul writes that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. First, look at the word mediator. Notice here that there's no other mediator because there's no one else like Jesus who could fill that role. A mediator is like a go-between, right? Someone who, who mediates a, a, a broken relationship and, and brings reconciliation and repairment to that relationship. We need a mediator between us and God because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We've lacked his goodness. We've sinned against him. We've rebelled against him. And so we cannot be accepted by him in and of ourselves because he's so good and we're so not. We can't know him and go to him in and of ourselves. He's too holy, too good, too righteous for us to be in his favorable presence. Job speaks of this in Job 9, 32 to 35. Job is, is he's complaining here. And he says, God is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. See here how, how, how Job is longing for a go-between, an arbiter, a mediator, now that arbiter that Job was longing to see has come in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is uniquely able to be that arbiter because he's the only one who is both truly God and truly man. He alone is the God-man as we established last week. And because he's truly God and truly man, he alone can bridge the gap and reconcile the broken relationship between God and men, God and people. He's truly God and therefore he fully meets God's standards, and yet he's also truly man, so he can meet our needs. Philip Graham Ryken says about this very passage, he says, the reason Jesus is the only mediator is that he's the only one who has both a divine nature and a human nature. Not the angels or Mary or the saints or even your, your favorite local minister, for none of them is divine. If we want to get to God, we have to go through this one divine person. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is able to represent and to reconcile both man and God because he's the most intimate sympathy with both parties. As the second person of the Trinity, he has communion with the Father and the Spirit. 
As a member of the human race, he has union with us. Therefore, as the Puritans used to love to say, Jesus Christ is able to strike hands on both sides of the covenant of grace. Jesus is the only mediator because Jesus is the only one fit to be mediator. And then not only that, but also as such, Jesus alone can pay our ransom. Look back at the the text there. Paul speaks not just of, of who Christ is and his uniqueness and sufficiency as our mediator, but also of what he's done for us in his work on the cross. On the cross, in his death, Jesus gave himself as our ransom. As the mediator, as the God-man, he died for our sins in our place. This term ransom is is a word that means someone being released from slavery or imprisonment by the payment of a price. It's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross for us, he was making an exchange for sin. He was dying to pay the price of God's justice. He was dying to satisfy God's divine justice and wrath. He alone could pay this price because of who he is as our mediator. The person who did this had to be God, and he had to be man to pay this price. Anselm of Canterbury put it best when he said this, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God for sin. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both God and man. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person. So that man who in his nature ought to pay and could not, should in a person who could. See, Jesus alone is the mediator between God and men because he alone is who he is and he alone did what he did. In dying, Christ paid the price that we alone owed, but that God alone could pay. And in paying it, he paid it all. He's the only remedy to the plight of the human condition. And listen, he's the only remedy we need. He's all the remedy we need. Friends, in and of ourselves, we are separated from God, but he is truly God and truly man to reconcile us. We have no righteousness of our own, but in his ransom, he shares with us the very righteousness of God. We're dead in trespasses and sins in and of ourselves, but he gives us resurrection life in himself. God's justice demands that our sins be punished, but he pays our ransom on the cross with his suffering and death. We're unacceptable and ashamed, but he shares with us his very own sonship before the, the Father so that we're accepted and loved in the same way that he is by the Father. There's no one else that can provide this. No one else can provide what he provides. Jesus alone is the complete Savior. Any need we have before God, He can answer for it. So in all reality, friends, we shouldn't be offended that God has provided only one way to be saved. Rather, we should be enormously amazed and grateful that He has provided this way and that in doing so, He has done it all. There's nothing left for us to add. Because of who he is and what he's done, there's nothing left for us to do but simply receive Christ's wonderful gift of forgiveness, mediation, ransom, eternal life. 
There's nothing else we need besides him. There's nothing we could add to him. John Calvin once said, our whole salvation and all of its parts are found in Christ. We should therefore take care not to look for it anywhere else. Rich supply of every kind of good abounds in him. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. Jesus is the only Savior. But he's all the Savior we need. We can bank on him to reconcile us to God. We can be sure of him this morning. As our mediator, as our ransom, he is sufficient for us. And as our sole and sufficient Savior, friends, he's also our sending Savior. How then should we live because of all this? Because Jesus is our sole and sufficient Savior. Because he's the one mediator between God and men, the exclusive way, the only way, but the sufficient way. How should we live? As those who know this, what, what, are, we, what are we called to here? Well, friends, as those who know the exclusive way, we're called to make him known. If Jesus is the only way, then we must be concerned with our neighbors and the nations hearing of him. Remember Paul's point here, verse 1. He's calling the church in Ephesus to, to pray for all people. Because, verse 4, God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. In verse 6, because Christ gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now here, when, when Paul says all people, we need to know what he means. When you say all people, you might mean each and every single individual or you might mean all kinds of people. Seems clear here that Paul's talking not about each and every single individual. He's talking instead about all kinds of people when he says this phrase, all people. All ethnicities, all peoples. And that's indicated here by verse 7 when, when Paul says he's been called as a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles, of the nations. The, the, the word translated there is literally the word from which we get the word ethnicity. It's the Greek word ethnos. Paul is saying that he's a teacher of the Gentiles, the nations, the various, various ethnicities, people groups of this world. So contextually, it seems that Paul is calling the church in Ephesus to pray for the gospel of Christ's salvation to go forth to these various peoples of the earth. They're to pray and live in light of the reality that we see in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. In Revelation 5, 9, and 10, the saints are worshiping Jesus, and they say in their worship, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, when Paul says that Jesus is a ransom for all people, he's saying that Jesus has in this way ransomed a people for himself from every nation, tribe, language, people of the earth to save them and to bring them into the people and kingdom of God. So he's saying this exclusive gospel that we have in Christ is meant to go forth in the world for the inclusion of all peoples. This is why Frederick Oldford, the story we looked at in the beginning, walked through the dangers of that jungle in the middle of that dark night so long ago, he was compelled to make this gospel known. 
He was compelled to see the peoples for whom Christ died come to know his glorious grace. And we likewise are called to participate in that same mission. We're, we're, we're burdened with this call to take that message forward in the earth. In fact, if we're indifferent to whether or not the peoples of this earth hear this news, there's reason to doubt we actually believe it. Because Paul seems to think that this, this mission and evangelism is a natural implication of the gospel and exclusivity of Jesus Christ. So he calls us, in light of Christ's exclusivity, to three particular things here. He's a sending Savior. He sends us to do three particular things here. First of all, notice here how we're to be a praying people. A praying people. Look at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. That's why Pastor Adam prayed in the way that he did just a few moments ago. That's why he prayed for unreached peoples who have yet to receive the gospel. That's why he prayed for governing authorities to rule justice and righteousness so that our nation would be one in which there is peace and quiet. So that we could then get on with this mission of bringing the gospel to all peoples that includes people here in our nation, and it also includes people across the earth. And it's true that Paul is speaking specifically here about the prayers we're to pray when we're gathered together as a church and, and worship. The kinds of prayers we pray here, friends, are, they're not meant to stay here. Almost everything we do here together on Sunday mornings is meant to be replicated and brought into your, home, your own homes, to be lived out in your community groups, in your families, in your personal life. The kinds of prayers that we pray here. Reason, part of the reason we pray them in the way that we do here is so that you are then equipped to pray in this way personally and privately and pray in this way in, in family worship. And pray in this way in your community group when you gather each week. And so I would just ask you, are you praying in the way that Paul urges us to here? Are you praying for the salvation of the lost? Are you praying for the gospel to go forth in power throughout the earth? Are you praying for the unreached to be reached? For the unengaged to be engaged? If all of your prayers were answered this morning in a second, who would be converted? What individuals would be converted? If all of your prayers were answered this morning, what unreached people groups would be reached with the gospel? What unengaged peoples would begin to be engaged? Who would be baptized? Whose lives in your neighborhood and in our city would be changed forever as a result? My friends, if, if we want to see God move in power, the, 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 the means of grace that he has given us to move his hand is that of prayer. He has given us prayer as a means of, of moving his hand in the earth, if we would see the gospel increase in our city and across the earth, if we would see the fruit of this kingdom that we've been given move forward, we must be a people who pray in this way. And we're called to be a praying people here. Also called to be a pious people. 
a pious people. Pious is not a word used a lot anymore. Unfortunately, it's begun to, in recent days, to take on a connotation of kind of self-righteousness, sometimes for some people. But to be pious historically, this is meant to be godly. Piety or godliness. As one theologian defines it, is a reverential love for God arising from God's grace, which aims to please God in all things. That's what it means to be pious. That's what it means to be godly. And godliness then in turn gives rise to dignified lives that we see here. Lives of dignity pertains more to, to the ways in which we relate to our neighbors. To relate to our neighbors with humility and kindness and patience and self-control, dignity. Verse 2 here shows us that we're to, to pray to the end that our nation be a place of peace and quiet so that then we could showcase this kind of godliness and dignity that bears witness to the truth of our gospel. Paul says to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We're to live lives that are godly and dignified in every way. We're to live lives of, of holiness, goodness. We're to live lives of good deeds with acts of love and compassion toward our neighbors. We're to live lives of godly conduct and character. And Paul goes on in, in verses 3 and 4 to say why. He says, this is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So you might be wondering kind of how these two ideas are related. God wanting all people to be saved and us living good, godly lives. It's not too hard to figure out if you just think about it for a moment. This is, this is a call to live in a way that ordains the gospel we articulate. We're called to live in this way to give credibility to our convictions and confession. We're called to live in this way that shows forth the transforming power of the message we proclaim. Our lives are meant to be lived in this way that shows that the gospel we proclaim is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes selfish, sinful human beings and turns them into gracious, humble, benevolent people. The way that we care for one another in the church, the way that we show compassion to our neighbors, our humility, our kindness, our, our, our generosity, our gentleness, our good deeds, it's all meant to give witness to our gospel. Our lives are meant to adorn the gospel we proclaim with our lips. Because when that happens, it gains us a hearing. It makes our message compelling. It makes people perk up and take notice. It makes people think, man, I'm not sure I completely understand what these Christians believe, but when I see how they live, it makes me think maybe there's something to this. Maybe, maybe this Jesus is who they say he is. The inverse of that would be that, that you know, we identify as, as Christians out there in the world, as church members, as people of this gospel. We live like scoundrels. We bicker and argue with our coworkers, lose our temper, fly off the handle, get drunk and high like everyone else. We're flirts and fornicators and adulterers. We give in to road rage and, 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 and all this. We don't love as we've been loved. Are our neighbors going to think that we are the people of God? That we truly know him? That his gospel is true? That it transforms? That it changes? Is that going to be a credible message? Will our way of life make the gospel compelling? 
No. No, God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, Paul says, we're called to be pious people, godly people, dignified people. And lastly, we're to be a proclaiming people, a proclaiming people. We have the message of the one way of salvation. If we know the one mediator between God and man, if we know the one way for people to be ransomed to God and relieved from guilt and redeemed from eternity in hell, then this is a message we can't keep to ourselves. Paul in verse 6 says that this is the testimony given at the proper time. It's a testimony. A testimony is giving public witness to what you know to be true. See, the same word used in Acts 4.33 to describe the apostles publicly preaching the gospel. This, this news about Jesus as our mediator, as our ransom, is a testimony. It's meant to go public. It's meant to be proclaimed. Paul himself, in light of this reality, says in verse 7 that he's been appointed as a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the nations. He's been tasked with bringing this testimony to the nations. Of course, this, this call to give public witness, to give testimony to the gospel is not the responsibility alone of a pastor or an apostle. It's our calling. It's all of our calling as Christians. It's the calling of everyday, ordinary Christians all over the earth to give public testimony to the truth of this message. The gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, is not chained to this pulpit this morning. It's gone into your ears and into your hearts this morning so that it might also then come out of your mouths and into the ears and hearts of your neighbors this week. Gospels proclaimed and God willing preserved here so that we might have a gospel then to give to our neighbors and to the nations in the days and weeks and years to come. And that's a calling laid on us all. Because there's one God. And there's one mediator between God and men, and his name is Jesus. Therefore, it is our concern. It is our call. And along with every other church and Christian across the face of the earth, for all people to hear the good news of this one true God and his one true gospel and his one true mediator. Friends, may we honor this truth and heed this call in our time together. Let's pray. Father, seal this word upon our hearts. May we see the beauty and uniqueness and sufficiency of Jesus this morning all the more and thereby be all the more compelled to make him known in our lives in the days to come. Glorify yourself in our midst. Strengthen us in the supper that we're about to participate in together so that we might give rise to lives of faithful witness for the sake and glory and name of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.